is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes we like to bring you interesting people, wise people, who can share their wealth of information and life experience with you. Every town in America has a person or two like that, and you know who they are in your town. And so that leads us to our introduction of our Don't Be a Fool series with Frank Hanna. And he's an Atlanta native, an investor, and just an all-around smart, wise, and good guy. Let's take it away. Frank Hanna didn't have a normal childhood. My father was not the traditional guy who would take the sons out for hunting and fishing. He'd come home from collecting rent at his apartment units, and we'd sit on the kitchen table and count the dollars out, and he'd talk to us about depreciation, and it was quite an education. I started trying to think about how to make money when I was about 14. I wanted to be able to take girls out for dates, and my father was not going to pay for dates. At an earlier age than I would have thought, I had more money than I had anticipated. And I thought to myself, what now? Sort of along the lines of the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Don't blow this. Don't be a fool. And so, not to be a fool, Frank actually studied how not to become one and is generous enough to share his fool-avoiding notes with us. Today's episode is titled, Bacon and Jelly. Even pretty much a materialistic culture. I think that's the, I just read this morning, somebody quoting T.S. Eliot who said he thinks that the only two choices in this world are between materialism and Catholicism, which was, I'm, I'm still unpacking that and, and thinking about that quote. But I think materialism is the dominant ethos of our time. And I think there is a sense that if we acquire enough material things, that we will be happy. And there is some truth to it in that the animal side of us literally does need material things. I mean, a dog needs food and water and a place to be warm when he sleeps at night. And those material things. We are material beings and we live in a material world and we do need material things. But they're just the first level. I mean, if you're using Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? They're just, they're at the bottom. But we get used to, and here's what happens. So you start with a few good material needs, and those do help make you happy. So then you figure, well, more of them will make, more or better, will make me happier. And guess what? That's kind of true, too. You know, I have a crappy little car with no air conditioning, and, and, and then I buy a nice car with air conditioning. I, it, my life is better now. And I've had a black and white TV, and now I got a color TV, my, my life is better. It's obje- I mean, it is, it's better, and I'm slightly happier. But at some point, and in, in actually in today's world, the marginal benefits of that start to tail off pretty soon. Okay, I mean, I got a 50-inch TV, well, I need a 55-inch TV. Come on, there's really no difference. And so, I think we do chase this idea of the, the material stuff. You know, what's interesting now is that the luxury goods are things like travel. So what the wealthy do, they go to Christmas parties and the first question they get is, where are you going for the holidays? As if it's some test almost. And if you're not going somewhere glamorous enough, 
that there maybe there's something wrong with you. What what's wrong? Are you quitting? Are you retiring? Are you are you yeah? The the idea that one might stay home with their family members during Christmas and not be getting on jets and flying away to places among this is among the socioeconomic elite. It's almost a heresy that 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 you wouldn't go somewhere after Christmas among the elite, right? And so. I think this desire for more and more material and sensational experiences is a function of both the fact that, yes, at times they can make life more interesting and happier, but that it starts to tail off much faster than you think. But we all get in these habits of wanting to acquire these things. And then, like I said, one day you, you wake up and you realize that you've created this situation for yourself. We have ever-rising expectations and an ever-increasing chance of not meeting those expectations. And so that's why you end up seeing really wealthy people who are also really unhappy and have a sense of emptiness. And not all of them do, obviously, but if you're pursuing materialism as the source of happiness, that's where it leads. The amount of frustration that can come from the expectations that we create with our wealth or our material goods. I notice that when I go eat at Waffle House, and in the South we have a lot of Waffle Houses, I'm pretty easygoing. I order my food. I don't expect it's going to come out right away, but it usually comes out. And, and if I've ordered eggs and toast and grits and bacon, and they forgot the bacon, yeah, I say to the waitress, oh, you forgot my bacon? She says, oh, I'm sorry. And then I may have to wait another five or 10 minutes for it. But hey, it's Waffle House and, you know, it's okay. Um, if I pay $50 for the same thing, which is what it costs at a nice hotel to order room service, and they forget the bacon, I'm livid. Because look, I'm paying $50, I should get the bacon. And in fact, that's, that's accurate. I should get the bacon if I'm paying $50. But the point is that I have allowed my own serenity, my own happiness, be affected by the amount of money I was spending. The experience is exactly the same in the Waffle House and in the hotel. It's exactly the same. Somebody forgot my bacon. And yet, I've allowed it, and, and that's what's happened. I have allowed the fact that I have this wealth and am spending it to affect negatively my own serenity. And there's something wrong with that picture. And there is something wrong with that picture. And it's a confessional of a sort. Frank is not exactly putting himself in a good light, but he's putting us all in an equal light. We've all been exactly where Frank has been. And when we continue more of Don't Be a Fool with Frank Hanna, Atlanta native, an all-around wise guy and smart guy here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Frank Hanna in our Don't Be a Fool series. There's a guy who wrote a book, really fascinating book, called The Paradox of Choice. And he points out, you know, in America we're convinced, and I say in America because we are the most freedom-loving country probably in the world, and we're convinced that more choice is better. But again, even that has not only a law of diminishing returns, but it may actually work in reverse. So he does an experiment where he gives people a choice of three jellies they can buy in a grocery store. And when they have a choice of three rather than just one, they like that. They get to pick their jelly. But then he gives them a choice of 20 jellies. And when it comes to 20 jellies, their anxiety rises. Because they taste this one, and then they taste this one, and then they taste this one. And then we'll go back and taste that one again. And, then, and you know, how do, how do I make sure out of three, you know, the odds that I made a mistake and picked the wrong jelly are pretty low. I mean, I tasted each of them and I was pretty clear this one was better. But if you give me 20, I got three or four of them that I'm thinking, hmm, I don't know. So then he went back and he asked the people the next day, what's your level of happiness with the jelly? And he found that the people who only had three choices were actually happier the people had 20. What was also interesting, though, was that he tested happiness a month later between those he had given a choice of changing jellies and those who had no choice to change jellies. Now, 90% of the people, I'm not getting these numbers exactly right, but close to 90% of the people that he offered a choice to switch jellies did not switch. But because they were given the choice to switch, a month later when he measured satisfaction levels, they were less satisfied with their jelly, even though they kept the same jelly, than the people who weren't offered the choice. In other words, just planting the seed in your mind that you've got a choice to switch can actually make you less happy. So when you order at a restaurant, order your food and then put the menu away and don't second guess it, okay? Because if you start second guessing it, you're going to actually reduce your happiness. Where this really has an impact, though, in our culture, significant impact, is on marriage. Because we now have a culture that says, well, even though you are married, you know, that doesn't have to be forever. That doesn't have to be forever. You still have a choice. So even for the people who stay married, We've planted in their minds the idea that they still have a choice. I've been thinking more and more about this because I just think our greatest impoverishment is the lack of healthy families in our country. I mean, we, we got a lot of material goods in this country. We don't have enough healthy families. And I'm reminded of a letter that J.R. Tolkien wrote to his son when his son first got married. And I'm going to paraphrase this. I can't get it exactly right. Tolkien said it much more eloquently. But he essentially said to his son, okay, now you're married, son. He said, assume you might not have picked the perfect one. Because let me tell you what the devil's going to do. He's going to start saying to you, are you sure she's the one? Yeah, he's going to wait till you get married. Now you're married. He's going to say, are you sure she's the one? Well, remember that girl you dated four or five years ago? Maybe... She might have made you a little bit happier. 
of all the women in the world, how can you be sure you got the right one? So he says to his son, just assume you didn't get the perfect one. But assume you got a good one. And if you ask for God's grace, then you're going to be really happy with a good one. We've become convinced now in this society, and I've seen, I talk to a lot of young people, and a lot of whom are postponing and prolonging the time before they get married to a stage that biologically is not even healthy because they've been convinced that the last thing in the world you want to do is marry the wrong person. And you don't want to marry the wrong person, okay? There needs to be compatibility. But the idea that you got to find the perfect person there's, there's literally no way to do that. To find the perfect person, you got to go through the whole field, okay? To find the perfect, you got to taste every jelly. And no one has enough time to, you can live a million years and you can't go out on a date with all the women in the world. There's no way. At some point, you have to choose a jelly. And you have to say, this is my jelly, this jelly tastes good. And I'm getting married. And ask God's grace for it. But we have created a society that says, no, you got to pick the perfect jelly. There's no perfect jelly. There's no perfect person. But God can give enough grace if there's compatibility. There does need to be compatibility. You need to like the taste of the jelly. Uh, But it doesn't have to be a perfect match. There has to be commitment, and asking for God's blessing is what allows a marriage to go forward. Marriage is really difficult. I, 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 I don't know if anyone's ever had an easy marriage. I've never met anyone who had an easy marriage. There are people deeply in love, but subverting your own human, your own animal selfishness to the needs of another person just goes against our animal natures, okay? And that's hard. And to do it 24-7, 365 is hard. Uh, So I I think we get through it with God's grace. I mean, I'm selfish. You know, I, 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 it, it, the funny thing, I mean, we can have traumas in our life, right? Um, that, that, and people have all kinds of traumas, that, that are, some of which are just tragic. But we all come with original sin into it. We all come. And, and, and at the end of the day, the original sin, the very root of it is pride. And the very root of that is to say, my will is what should prevail. And that's everything from where the toothpaste should be stored in the cabinet in the bathroom to really dramatic things like where are we going to live and how many children are we going to have and what church are we going to go to, okay? The, the, the really serious things in life down to the toothpaste. And there are various levels of control freaks or not, but, but everybody's got a little bit of stuff that they want themselves. They have their own opinion. So as I look back, I've been married 35 years now. I don't remember any particular big problem, but there's stuff every day. I, I will say this, as an encouragement to young people, I am more and more cognizant, the longer I'm married, of the extraordinary blessings of marriage. So Einstein referred to compounding interest as the eighth wonder of the world. For, the, for those of your listeners who, who don't know finance, um, compounding interest is just incredible. You start with 
a dollar and seven years later it's two dollars but then seven years later it's four and then before you know it right there's a ton of money because it there's this it's not exponential i don't guess but it's a geometric effect of the way the money grows i think some of that can happen in a marriage it doesn't happen for everybody but it happens a lot more than you think where the people who have been married for 35 years that 35th year has a lot more joy and happiness in it than the second year, or the fifth year, or the eighth year. I think the grace hopefully gets manifested even more significantly. So, I was happily married the day I got married and on our one year anniversary. I'm a lot more happily married today. And I really want young people to know that after accepting God into your heart after that decision, I think for most people, the most significant source of joy and fulfillment and happiness in their life will be a good marriage. That was Frank Hanna you were listening to our Don't Be a Fool series. By the way, we all know the importance and significance of marriage and a joyful and happy marriage being Well, everything, if that goes south, your life goes south. And yet, do we live that way? Do we spend our time that way? Is this our primordial and primal goal in our day-to-day activities? We know how important this primary relationship is. The most important relationship in any community is the quality and substance of the nature of the marriages in that community. And without them, that community suffers. And then the nation suffers. And so thank you for all that, Frank Hanna, and thanks for all you do for us. Frank is also the author of the books, What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well, and also A Graduate's Guide to Life, Three Things They Don't Teach You in College That Could Make All the Difference. You can pick up both at Amazon.com. And good job and great job, as always, to Alex for running down this material and these people that we get to hear from, all kinds of people from every walk of life. And again, not famous people, not the people who want to be under the Klieg lights on TV. They don't have wisdom, they just have fame. Our folks have wisdom. Frank Hanna's story, in a way, his dad's, their stories, their wisdom, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and Jesse, I'm not sure what that music is, but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack. The Visioneers. Oh, The Visioneers. I love it. I love it. It sounds like something that our, our friend Trenton, Quentin, not Trenton, Quentin Tarantino. It's very California. It is very California. Love it. Recently, we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this this story 
and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Baugh. Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a, a tiny, self-declared country. Uh, we sort of see it as a, um, expression, a self-expression, uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Molossia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Molossia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, my friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo- of that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king. I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years. And then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state completely surrounded by the United States, and as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no, we do not um, allow other people to move in and become become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, We have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, Surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. They see this as a way to get here. But Malaysia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malaysia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, We do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, This guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time I was the prime minister, it was the Grand Republic of Goldstein at that time, and I was the prime minister, and I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back, back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would roast us up out of our sleep, and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po- a post because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times, so I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. 
And then a few years ago, I was rooting through my records and I pulled this thing out and I said, well, that's kind of cute, that's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discover that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, uh -huh. I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the, to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany, at least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island, it's uninhabited, except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever. For as long as at least the embargo goes on, because we would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way. And she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, it's like a, it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country. And she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, and it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of, like, your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malasia uh, has its own customs, uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago. And one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Kokens measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do, you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, because it's kind of a styling thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line. And I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. 
it wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship, want to see it as a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway, it's a family country. And so, uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Baugh, one of a kind, the micro nation of Malasia. Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is Our American Stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much, just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there, crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here in our American stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be, this is our American stories, Kevin. The dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about everything. And one of our favorite segments, and yours too, is our This Day in History segment. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu and learn more. They have terrific and free online courses there. And today, our This Day in History, well, it's all about a story and a product that was launched in 2007. On January 9, 2007, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, already a legendary pitchman, put on what many considered the best business presentation in corporate history. Here's technology commentator Charlie Brown. Steve Jobs was a master at teasing new technology to people, and everyone turned up to Macworld thinking they were seeing a new iPod or a new Mac. He was showing them something vastly different, something new and something that was going to change the world. And he did it like the master that he was. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. At the Macworld conference in San Francisco, Jobs built up the narrative before he even mentioned a new product. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. 1984, we introduced the Macintosh. It didn't just change Apple, it changed the whole computer industry. In 2001, we introduced the first iPod. And it didn't just change the way we all listen to music. It changed the entire music industry. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. Jobs was famous for adding one more thing at the end of his keynotes. In his 2007 iPhone presentation, 
he put the twist at the beginning. The following excerpt is the most viewed and maybe the most memorable part of the iPhone presentation. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. So, three things. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. Every great story has a villain or a conflict in need of a resolution. In the 2007 iPhone keynote, Jobs showed several competing smartphones and pointed out their weaknesses and then showed how the iPhone solved all their issues. Now, here's four smartphones, right? Motorola Q, the BlackBerry, Palm Treo, Nokia E62, the usual suspects. And the problem with them is really sort of in the bottom 40 there. <laughs> they all have these keyboards that are there whether you need them or not to be there. And they all have these control buttons that are fixed in plastic and are the same for every application. Well, every application wants a slightly different user interface, a slightly optimized set of buttons just for it. And what happens if you think of a great idea six months from now? You can't run around and add a button to these things. They're already shipped. Well, how do you solve this? Hmm. It turns out we have solved it. We solved it in computers 20 years ago. We solved it with a bitmap screen that could display anything we want, put any user interface up, and a pointing device. We solved it with the mouse, right? We solved this problem. So how are we going to take this to a mobile device? Well, what we're going to do is get rid of all these buttons and just make a giant screen. A giant screen. Now, how are we going to communicate this? We don't want to carry around a mouse, right? So what are we going to do? Oh, a stylus, right? We're going to use a stylus. No. no. Who wants a stylus? You have to get them and put them away and you lose them. Yuck. Nobody wants a stylus. So let's not use a stylus. We're going to use the best pointing device in the world. We're going to use a pointing device that we're all born with. We're born with 10 of them. We're going to use our fingers. It's easy to forget how funny Jobs could be on stage. His iPhone launch presentation elicited a laugh from the audience 51 times. Here's one of those times during the iPhone Maps pitch. Starbucks. So I'm going to search for Starbucks. And sure enough, there's all the Starbucks. <laughs> now, I can get a list of Starbucks here. So I can pick that one if I want. And I can even go look at that Starbucks. And there it is. And let's give him a call. Good 
morning. Starbucks turn How can I help you? Yes, I'd like to order 4,000 lattes to go, please. No, just kidding. Wrong number. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Today we look back, and it all looks so easy. But the launch of one of the best-selling products of all time was expected by many to go disastrously wrong and take Apple's fortunes along with it. Here's iPhone co-creator Andy Grignan. Every single time he touched the screen, we're waiting for the music to stop playing. We're waiting for the browser to just go white. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we knew were could happen. I've got playlists here. I can go into my playlists. I've got artists. I've got songs. The stress level is through the roof. You've never seen behind stage a more angsty, <laughs> miserable group of people. Jobs' team is stressed for good reason. Up until this point, the iPhone had never made it without a glitch through all the trial tests and practice presentations. We had a very careful path. It was called the golden path that Steve had to follow. He had to do exactly these things in exactly this order. And if he didn't, it could crash. What the audience didn't know was to avoid these crashes, there are several iPhones in Jobs' lectern with Jobs discreetly switching between them. It would take a magician to figure out how he did it. Here's magician Penn Gillette. He was doing switches. He would switch one iPhone for the other so he could show off different apps when they actually couldn't change. But even with the multiple hidden iPhones, Andy Grignot and his team of engineers who watched backstage expected the worst. Grignot came prepared, especially for that grand finale crank call to Starbucks. I could play with this for a long time. I just anticipated all this going wrong. So on my drive, uh, I brought with me a bottle of scotch. And what we decided to do is every one of us who was responsible for a certain part of the demo, whether it was playing some music, showing the maps, whoever was responsible for that part would take a shot. Problem was, I'd been involved for all of them. By the time Steve does the big finale, I'm completely wasted. He's got, at this point, maps going, there's paused music. All the software is lit up on this phone. So I'm going to search for Starbucks, and sure enough, there's all the Starbucks. Things could go just absolutely sideways. And uh, I can even go look at that Starbucks, and there it is, and let's give him a call. Maybe the whole thing was just going to just go black and then restart. We didn't know. It was the first time any of us as a group saw just a perfect... Demo. I mean, we'd never seen the whole thing go off without a hitch. Five months after Steve Jobs' presentation, as customers waited in line for days, the iPhone hit the shelves in the United States. This is going to be like going down in the history of all cell phones. To see the line of people snaking around the building, waiting to hand over $700 plus for a phone that we had just created, was the time where it really kind of hit home for me. Steve, I love you! How's the smartphone changed our lives? It's changed everything. Everything is trackable, filmable, shareable, um, you can use it for basically any function that you want to do. You can do it better by using a smartphone. The device is still Apple's most important product in their arsenal of cultural and technological must-have items. Today's app economy is bigger than Hollywood, and WhatsApp, Snapchat, Uber, Tinder, and more are essential parts of modern culture 
collectively used by hundreds of millions of people every day. But before the iPhone, none of that existed. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work as always, and thanks to the folks at Hillsdale College, who, by the way, teach things like the fact that intellectual property rights, well, they're in the Constitution and they're in Article 1, and this innovation is not possible without that. And what free enterprise does for the world and for human progress. By the way, that clapping you kept hearing, that was not your typical corporate meeting and corporate launch, was it, folks? On this day in history in 2007, the iPhone is launched and change the world. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how the rule of law silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing it. And here's our own Alex Cortez with today's story. American Craig Richardson had a childhood that was a little bit different than his friend Ben Freese. Craig was hanging around with... Famous economists. Milton Friedman tucked me into bed when I was five years old, gave me a goodnight kiss on the forehead. My dad joked that was the day I became an economist. While Ben, a British kid whose family moved to Zimbabwe, was hanging around with wild animals of a different sort. African stars on an African night when you've got lions roaring and hyenas whooping, uh, something that uh, is far better than any Mississippi star that you'd ever see, I'm quite sure. Their lives would be different later on, too. Craig interned at the World Bank. The woman who was the lead researcher said, well, we want you to do three background papers on three countries, Zimbabwe, Colombia, and Argentina. And I just rather impulsively said, I'll take Zimbabwe. And so that entire summer, I just got knee-deep in appreciating everything about that country. In 1992, it was really the jewel of Africa. And so I wrote this 100-page background paper, which I really put aside. And then it wasn't for another 10 years that I went back to investigate what happened to Zimbabwe because it was just falling apart. And that was kind of the launch of this 15-year exploration into what happens when a country abandons rule of law and property rights. For Ben Freeth, it wasn't an academic study. It was real life. It was like being in a boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back. We had a, a couple of guys that did try and defend themselves with guns. They got killed, you know, when you're a few farmers against uh, an army of 40,000 soldiers and, and 20,000 policemen, you don't stand a chance. Zimbabwe, like a lot of countries, was colonized. It was led by Cecil Rhodes, 
who fashioned himself as an entrepreneur, but he really came with machine guns and captured huge amounts of territory, which would later be called Rhodesia, named after himself, and created a colony of England. And Rhodesia was run by a small group of whites. And so for many, many years, all the way up until 1980, there was a huge disconnect between the fate of blacks and the fates of whites. In 1980, after a lot of guerrilla warfare, Britain really backed away from the leader at the time, and they had elections, and Robert Mugabe came into power in 1980. And Robert Mugabe was a very well-educated man, and also extremely shrewd and canny, as time would tell. And so the early story of Zimbabwe is a fairly good one. Um, he immediately created a series of primary, middle, and high schools for all the black citizens of Zimbabwe, and the literacy rate went up to 92%, which is the highest in all of Africa. And higher than the United States is right now. A lot of people thought he would kick out the whites at that point, but he didn't. The 1980s and early 90s had strong economic growth, tourism was growing, the agricultural system was really undergirded by about 4,000 white farmers who were there, many of them from British descent. They had very large scale farms. And this system was based on Zimbabwe's very strong property rights system. And I was really going to find out how important this was. Because the importance for any farmer or for any business really is to have collateral. If you go to the bank, you want to be able to have collateral, and the collateral comes from having a title to your land because that becomes the insurance policy for the bank. And the bank will loan this business money, but they know that they can foreclose on that land and get some of their assets back. And so that it becomes so important and so critical for economic growth is that people need to have property titles and that property title creates trust. And that's a really important point that a lot of economists in America miss because we just take property rights for granted. But in Zimbabwe, property rights were enshrined. They had a constitution very much like the United States. There was this blossoming of economic activity. So where did it all go wrong? We had been a one-party state. There was only Robert Mugabe and his party, and he had made sure that there was no opposition. Any opposition that had been raised up, he had stamped upon very quickly and persecuted until they were out of existence. And then in 1999, an opposition was finally formed, a viable opposition, and it was quite clear after 19 years of, of Mugabe's rule that Mugabe would be out of power when it came to elections. So what Mugabe did was he put together a referendum to change the constitution to entrench his power. The people were given the carrot of you're going to get land for free if you vote yes for this constitution. Of course, nothing is free. The land was to be seized from Zimbabwe's white farmers. And the people voted against that constitution, and that was a real shock for Mugabe. And he realized that he was going to have to do everything possible to ensure that the people were intimidated ahead of the election in 2000. 
so that the opposition didn't come into power. That's when all hell was let loose. Within two weeks of the result of that referendum, which Mugabe lost, we had farm invasions all over the country. It was well organized. Including on the farm of Ben's in-laws, which he farmed with them, and thousands of others. And Mugabe endorsed it all. It was done in a very violent way, and the police were under very strict instructions not to help us. And we suddenly realized what it was like to live without law, without the rule of law protecting us any longer. And when we come back more of this remarkable story, our rule of law series, what happens when a country abandons property rights and the rule of law. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Zimbabwe's dictator, Robert Mugabe, ushering in the seizure of farms owned by his country's white citizens. This is also the story of two friends, Ben Freeth, whose farm was taken, and Craig Richardson, an American economist. Let's pick up with Craig. Originally, Zimbabwe was before the whites colonized it and took it over, it was a series of communal lands run by different tribes, the Shona and the Ndebele. And, you know, honestly, they fought over land as well. And so within these villages, the chief is really the one who decides who gets the land. And that gives the chief a lot of power. And that's still, that, that's still existing today, side by side, with the current system. So there's been a tension about that. So these villages... There's a lot of communal land, and, and, you know, and the upside of that is it sort of creates this very family environment, and you know who is going to be there and who's not, and you can't just have strangers come in and move next to you. So it creates this kind of coziness, but there's a price of everything, and the price of coziness is poverty. <laughs> so that's one of the things that, that I've tried to explain, is that there's, a, there's always a positive and a negative. So when you have the property rights, they can be threatening to a culture that has been there for a long time, and that's why it's really important. And if people are coming in, you have to be mindful of that. You have to be mindful of a culture that has been there for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years and think about what's the right way to give people ownership over this process and transition. So this communal system grew up, and when Cecil Rhodes came in in the mid-1800s, of course, there was seizing of land. And so he did, he did the same thing, you know, as Mugabe did. I mean, he seized land without compensation in most cases. But over time, you know, over, over a period of 100 years, that land then began to be traded and sold and bought and sold by different entities. So, and, and then by that time also, a lot of whites were being born in Zimbabwe, you know, considered themselves Zimbabweans. They didn't think of themselves as British. They thought themselves, we are Zimbabweans just like everybody else. 
So in some ways, it's not very different than if you think about, I mean, here in North Carolina, I mean, we have land that we're sitting on here right now that, you know, was formerly, quote unquote, owned by the Cherokees, right? So we have every, I mean, the history of land is a history of theft in some ways. You know, and at some point you have to go back and you have to say, yeah, that happened. But it sometimes is really hard to correct those things as well. So fast forward, you know, sort of 100 years, the land which had been initially seized by the whites is now being bought and sold on markets. And now the people who are 100 years later, are, you know, several, three generations after the fact, are now buying land under the auspices of the Mugabe government, which is approving these, these sales. They are giving people letters that are saying, this is a letter that says that what you've done is proper and we recognize your constitutional right to own this land. So if you, it, by the 2000s, uh, when these seizures happen, there's a statistic that something like over 95% of all of these farmers had bought those farms on the market. So, you know, this idea that these people had taken money with, or taken the farms was not right. Their ancestors, yeah, but not them. Perhaps the greatest evidence that this shouldn't have been a black versus white thing is that 8,500 blacks had commercial farms that were just like those of the white farmers. And just like them, they were also successful. Their race had nothing to do with it. Their property title had everything to do with it. Communal lands that were literally right next to these productive white and black commercial farms were dusty, ugly, and unproductive. My wife's family have been farming in Africa for just over 300 years without a break. That's a very long time. That's a lot longer than many white Americans have been in America. And yet, because we are white people, a lot of the world seems to think that we cannot be Africans. How many generations does it take before people are considered to be from the place that they are from? In America, I'm quite sure there's, there's no question about a white person being able to be an American. But in Africa, amongst the black nationalists, they do not consider that a white person can be an African. Um, and there's something very wrong in that. We're kind of treated as though we are, we are second-class citizens, that we, we have lesser rights to everyone else by virtue of the fact that we have a different colored skin. And because we're white, the rest of the world looks the other way, and they don't want to they don't want to deal with this issue. Um, if we were a black minority people in a predominantly white country, the world would say, no, no, this is, this is absolutely wrong. And things like the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of, of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, complaints would go to the United Nations on, on that and, and, and things would happen. But because we're white people, that that doesn't happen. I, I've tried to find a country that would put a complaint into the United Nations. There's not one. We initially had an invasion on the farm and 
It wasn't violent, but it was obviously very disconcerting. That's an understatement. Over 20 black men entered their farm and refused to leave. Anxious that they might cut down trees on the estate to build homes, Ben's father-in-law, Mike Campbell, gave them a shed to sleep in, and they gradually took over the farm. Cows were stolen and slaughtered. Fires were started at random, and gunshots were fired in the middle of the night. And unlike most seizures, which took place in a matter of hours, theirs happened in slow motion over a matter of years. Which in many ways is almost worse. Quite early on in the farm invasions, um, we had a group come onto the farm that had come from a faraway place where there was a lot of malaria. We didn't have malaria on the farm and these people brought a strain of malaria with them. In a period of a month, nine of our farm workers died. And my sister-in-law, Heidi, was pregnant with twins at the time. And very sadly, she died along with the twins. So it was a, it was a very tragic thing for the family. Uh, she was... She was still very young and um, had, a, had a long and, and vibrant future. In 2004, we realized that a government minister was after the farm. And he pitched up at the farm with a bunch of guys with, with AK-47s. And he said he was coming to take the farm. And... Um, we, we said to him that he would have to take it or that we would do everything possible to make sure that if he did take it, he would take it in a civilized and legal manner. And so that's when we as a family decided that we had to make a stand. Anyone going to the law courts was deemed to be an enemy of the state and there was huge intimidation for anyone that tried to use the law courts by then all the the good judges had been intimidated out of office and all judges had been given farms themselves um, so we knew that there was really no chance of getting any justice in the law courts but we decided that we had to go to the law courts even so and I remember when my father-in-law signed that bit of paper taking President Mugabe to court, we knew that it was probably the signing of our death warrants. And when we come back, we'll continue with our Rule of Law series, Zimbabwe's abandoning of property rights and the rule of law. And of course, what terrific narrators What terrific storytelling by both Craig Richardson, an American economist, and his friend, Ben Freeth. When we come back, more of their stories, more of this remarkable story about something we all take for granted each and every day here in America. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to our Rule of Law series, Zimbabwe's Abandoning of Property Rights and Rule of Law. And we pick up with Ben Freeth, whose family's farm was seized by the government. Zimbabwe law by then was, was getting very difficult because the following year, 2005, they changed the constitution to say that government could take any land at the stroke of a pen and we didn't have any recourse to be able to go to any court. Suddenly, we had no leg to stand on according to Zimbabwe law. And, you know, that's a really, really difficult place to be. The amazing thing was that within a week of having our hearing in the Supreme Court of Zimbabwe, the SADC tribunal opened for business. And, and this was a court for all the 280 million people of Southern Africa. We hadn't even known that it was about to get up and running. So we were able to eventually end up in that SADC tribunal, this human rights court for the whole of Southern Africa, where we took it on three grounds. We took it, first of all, on the fact that you can't just take all rights away from someone without any recourse to the courts. That ouster clause, as it's called, is something that goes against the rule of law. You know, you have a right in any legal society to defend yourself if something is happening to you that you believe is wrong. And if you're told that you can't even go to the court to say that the process is, is flawed, then um, you end up with no protection from law at all. And then the second point that we used was the fact that it was racially discriminatory. It was just because of the color of our skin that we were being victimized. And then the third aspect that we put forward in the SADC Tribunal and the Supreme Court was the fact that if you take something from someone, you should compensate them. It's the work that you have put in that has built that place up. When we built our house, for example, you know, we, we made every brick on the farm. We, all the trees that we used for the roofing were, were trees that were, had been planted on the farm by the family. It, it, it was all our own work. So to, to take it away from you without any compensation <coughs> is absolutely ridiculous. And two weeks before the main hearing of our case in the tribunal, they took us off, they abducted us. The henchmen of dictator Mugabe. And they beat us up uh, really severely, and they tried to get us to withdraw from going to court. And by this stage, I was unconscious, and my father-in-law was unconscious, and so eventually they got my mother-in-law, who, who by this time also was in a bad way. She had had her arm badly broken and was beaten around the head and all bruised and um, they put a, a burning stick into her mouth and she was in a bad way but she was conscious and they, they got her to sign a bit of paper to say that we would withdraw from the court and that's the kind of lengths that they wanted to go to to, to, to make sure that we, we couldn't continue with the law. And in the face of all of this, Ben and his family 
continued anyway. And we won on all three counts. The international court ruled in his favor. By the way, those are all black judges. And so that his farm should be restored, that Zimbabwe took this farm away improperly. And unfortunately, Zimbabwe just, the government totally ignored the ruling. But he got a lot of international attention for that. And, and a lot of that was really just just to draw attention to Zimbabwe and how it was ignoring rule of law and really to, you know, cast some shame on the government. And then he had another lawsuit where he went to South Africa. And again, he won. And what he did was he attached to the lawsuit the claim on one of Mugabe's residences in South Africa, one of his, you know, vacation homes. And he won that case. And so what happened was that South Africa turned over the assets to Ben Free. So that was a pretty clever way to file that lawsuit. But the battle wasn't over. Several months after they beat Mugabe in the Sadic Tribunal came payback time. We had uh, all hell on the farm and, and a new massive invasion took place where our workers were thrown into fires and, and uh, dropped on their heads on concrete and had fractured skulls. Black workers, by the way, over 500 of them who were dragged off to all-night indoctrination classes to persuade them of Mugabe's way of thinking, which wasn't their way. They loved Ben's family. You know, really, really difficult times, which finally ended up with, with both our houses being being burnt down and, and us having all our crops stolen and, and, and all the tractors stolen and, and all the tools of our trade stolen. And, and we walked off that farm with, with not even a toothbrush between us as a family. Zimbabwe went into a downward spiral um, in 2000, and this is where I got interested again in what, what the heck was happening because the economy was collapsing so fast. And what happened was the 4,000 farms, you know, as they began to be seized by the government, there's probably only 300 left that are in way in Zimbabwean hands. The export sector collapsed. Those who seized the land didn't know what to do with it and didn't really have any interest to learn how on Ben's family's farm, the present squatters there grow corn but admit that it's no good and produce a 60th of what their family did. And 40,000 fruit trees they leave untended. And the export sector was so important for bringing the hard currency in to pay the government's bills. So tobacco actually was coming to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I live, and RJR Tobacco is based here. So we were buying tobacco from Zimbabwe. When you had the loss of flow of dollars coming into the country of Zimbabwe, it starts running a huge budget deficit. And in a country where you have trust, you can, you can sell bonds. You know, so the United States can sell bonds to fill a deficit because there's trust around the world that we're going to pay on our debts. But here's what's critical is that 
when Zimbabwe broke with the rule of law, they lost trust. They lost trust immediately around the whole world. And foreign investors pulled out. Nobody believed the government anymore about anything. So they couldn't sell bonds to plug this deficit. So what could they do? The only thing they could do is start to print money. So they began some printing money to cover these deficits. And we know what happens when you start printing more and more money is you start to have this inflation. And when I was there in 2006, the inflation rate was at 50,000% a year. So my dinner bill at the restaurant I ate at was about $400,000. And uh, I gave a nice tip of about $20,000 to my waitress, but that was only about $20 in US dollars. So the whole bill was about $400,000. When I returned the following year in 2007, the same bill, the same restaurant was over $3 million in Zimbabwe dollars. I, I didn't think it would be getting higher than that, but in fact, hyperinflation roared on. It went into the hundreds of millions of percent a year. They issued the biggest bill in the history of the world. They issued a $100 trillion note, which was worth about $3. And you can't make this stuff up, folks. Rule of law matters. Property rights matter. And we're not finished with the story. When we come back, the final installment, a tale of two friends, Craig Richardson, an economist, Ben Freeth, who owned a family farm that was seized by the government. More about their stories here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of this remarkable story for our Rule of Law series. Zimbabwe dictator Robert Mugabe's seizure of farms owned by white citizens led to the country's economic collapse. And two friends, Ben Freeth, whose farm was taken, and Craig Richardson, an American economist, have been bringing us through the story. And Craig picks back up on Zimbabwe's hyperinflation. That all ran its course by the time prices were doubling every single day, every 24 hours at, at its worst. By 2009, the government basically realized they couldn't go any further, they couldn't print money ever any faster, and they realized they were at the end of the road, and they adopted the U.S. dollar. And what was remarkable is that inflation dropped from hundreds of millions of percent a year down to to 2%. I mean, it just matched the U.S. inflation rate because it, we're using the same currency. So from 2009 to, to here, they've basically been on the U.S. dollar and they've tried to start to issue their own currency, but it's been a big failure. So we've kind of kept them in check or kept their government in somewhat in check because they can't run deficits anymore, you know, unless they get foreign aid, but they really, they're really locked in that way. But this isn't enough to get them back. They have to rebuild their trust. Sierra even, he said, Mugabe. Anyone who's murdered white farmers uh, will never be prosecuted. And, and we've seen that over, over all the years where people have been murdered. None of them, none of the murderers have been prosecuted. Um, 
And it, it, it's, it's a brutal system that we live under where the government or government lackeys will, uh, will do that and police will stand by. In fact, when my wife went to the police station, the police just laughed at her. Literally, they laughed at her. They knew exactly what was happening. My wife reported all the shooting that had been going on, the fact that we'd been taken off to one of the torture camps that were being run at the time because it was election time and, and that's what the ruling party does ahead of elections. Uh, people were being tortured and we were one of those victims and the police just laughed, you know. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a pretty horrific thing to live through um, that, that there is this total impunity and what was really very uh, disappointing was that President Munangagwa, this new president that we've got now, said to Zan Smiley from The Economist magazine that the 2008 elections, which is the time that I'm talking about when there was so many, I mean, there were tens of thousands of people that were tortured. He said, Munangagwa said, there was no violence. That election was free and fair. He said, there are no reports in any police stations of any violence. And, you know, I remember lying in hospital with, with victims of this violence, victims who had been tortured like we were tortured and had broken bones in their bodies like we had broken bones in our bodies. And um, for the current president, who was head of the Joint Operational Command during that 2008 election to say that there was no violence during that time is, is horrific. But none of those people were ever prosecuted. And under Monongagwa, they won't be prosecuted either because he says there's no, there was no violence. But there were hundreds of people killed and tens of thousands of people tortured within the inches of their lives. And the torture is even more widespread in a much more daily way. The people that used to feed the whole of Southern Africa were now hungry themselves. Ben and his wife still live in Zimbabwe, and he has now started a foundation called the Mike Campbell Foundation. Named after his father-in-law, who died after the beatings he took. Which works with black farmers on improved farming technique. They have farming yields that are five times higher than government farms. So he's just a remarkable guy. You know, God, I believe, is a God of justice and, and God wants us to be able to stand for him for justice. And, you know, when you've got your life at risk, you have to know what is going to happen to you if, if they come and take you out. So our Christian faith has been fundamental in giving us the courage and giving us the impetus and giving us the provision in fact as well because there's many times when you you wonder how on earth you're going to be able to carry on because everything's been taken and it's very difficult to to make a living and and god has provided for us materially to be able to carry on he's provided for us in the form of ensuring that lawyers come alongside us and they've done incredible pro bono work for us because uh, 
they've believed in what we're doing and because uh, I believe God has, has directed them to, to help out. So our Christian faith is what has kept us going through all these very troubled times and has kept us also from becoming bitter and full of hatred because you know this is this is a natural thing when when people come and 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 take everything that you've ever worked for and when people in your family die and when you get beaten within an inch of your life and and things like that then the natural thing very often is to become bitter Um, and I've seen it I've seen people become bitter and God has protected our hearts from from becoming bitter because at the end of the day bitterness is something that destroys you and destroys the people that are around you it does nothing to change anything for the better for anyone uh, it's it's a terrible thing bitterness so we we just thank God for for protecting our hearts from that bitterness that that is so possible and so probable in circumstances like we've faced. Ben and his family have committed to stay in Zimbabwe for the long haul until law rules the day. And although the present is full of chaos, there are pebbles of promise. So I tell a kind of a quick story uh, about that. I was um, when I was in Zimbabwe. You know, one of my favorite things is to get out of the city and drive, drive out in the countryside. So I, I had a fellow who, who got with me in a Land Rover, and we were driving through villages and, and a couple of, you know, I like to see the extraordinary in the ordinary. So I, I stopped at a farm. Um, where there was some dairy cattle and there was a, a young uh, black farmer there he had a very nice tidy house there made out of brick and a beautiful uh, second um, a second place an outdoor um, cooking area against beautiful thatched roof you know 30 dairy cattle he was at we turned out he was dairy farmer of the year um, and we started talking and I said you know what's your key to success and he got this big smile on his face and I, I did not feed him this at all believe me and I, and I said what is the key and he said he said my property title it's everything to me and I said well what do you mean he said this this is what is the whole reason why I've invested in my farm he said I was I was nobody I was had a little quarter acre plot I could barely feed anybody before that and I had no reason to he said but I got this property title and suddenly my whole world changed and he just said my property title it's everything to me you know and that really stuck with me um, and the second part of that same day um, I was still you know driving through these dusty roads and you know the sort of stereotypical um, African mud huts you would see and suddenly we saw another house being built that was brick and um, again with windows and you know beautiful brick house um, just coming out of the ground and we stopped and there was a woman there and I stopped and I said hey you know hey you know my name's Craig Richardson um, and she was a little bit shy about talking what's this guy what does he want but we talked a little bit and then I, I asked her I said what you know I'm interested why are you building this nice brick house and she said well I just got a, um, a property title and I've suddenly now, I, I've spent all, you know, last month drawing out my house. 
and putting where my windows would go. And now I got a loan from my bank. And I have a field now that I'm thinking completely differently what I'm going to grow and how I'm going to grow and what I'm going to sell. You know, and, and the, it was funny because the guy driving with me didn't really, he, you know, he was, he was like, I would have never thought to ask that question. You know, it was sort of right in front of him, you know, like, like it is with a lot of us, things that are right in front of our noses. We don't even think to ask, but it was just remarkable. And I have pictures of that house that I show, you know, because it's just remarkable in both of those cases, how these were people who were subsistence, you know, on subsistence. And that turn of events, getting that property title, completely transformed everything. Getting that property title completely transformed everything. And we don't know, we can't imagine life in this great country or anywhere else for that matter without the property right and the rule of law that supports that property right. Terrific work, Alex, as always. And this story, by the way, was inspired by a paper that Craig Richardson wrote for the think tank, the Cato Institute. It was entitled, How the Loss of Property Rights Caused Zimbabwe's Collapse. If you want to dive even deeper into this story, make sure to go to Cato.org and search for Craig's paper. And while there, check out all of Cato's great work. They're bringing liberty to life for all of us. Our Rule of Law series, twice monthly, on Our American Stories, and you can subscribe to the podcast by simply searching for Rule of Law on iTunes. Leave us a review if you can, and a five-star rating if you believe that we actually deserve it. This is Our American Stories.